Spring turkey season is upon us, and don't be caught out in the woods without having Onyx Hunt on your phone. One feature Onyx has that is often overlooked for turkey hunting is their recent imagery filter with their elite memberships. This imagery is updated week to week, and it comes in extremely handy, especially when you're trying to find these gobble zones where these turkeys will go out in a high spot on a fresh clear cut and strut around all day long. Actually, I was just looking at on Onyx where, where the timber company just came into Andrew's club and did a very small clear cut along this creek, and I can see the high spots on the topographical map, but also I can see exactly where they mulch, and those are going to be hot spots for finding gobblers, especially mid-morning after they get off their hens, getting up on these little high spots in this fresh, small clear cut along the creek and strutting and gobbling all day long. If you want to give Onyx a try, you can actually download it for free, try it for seven days, and if you decide to purchase, you can use the promo code SOUTHERN and save on your premium and elite memberships. So go into this turkey season, know where you stand with Onyx. Well, guys, we have some exciting news for you from Vortex about their brand new eyewear, their Banshee and Jackal sunglasses. Me and Andrew have had these for a few weeks now, right before the release, and we've been extremely impressed. They're awesome glasses, guys. And listen, if you're needing some new sunglasses, not only do they have the VIP warranty, but they're tough as crap, guys. Uh, Scratch-resistant eyewear, uh, it's extremely important. And also, they have safety features as well. So when you're out shooting at the range, again, these are rated glasses, so you are going to be more than protected when you're at the range. But they also look fantastic when you're out around town. So right now, Vortex has some special pricing on their website, which is vortexoptics.com for the new eyewear. But also, if you use the code SOUTHERN20, you get to save even more on this special pricing for right now at vortexoptics.com. Again, check out the new eyewear from vortexoptics.com and use the promo code SOUTHERN20 to save on their brand new eyewear. Hey everybody, this is Kyle V, host of the Ozark Podcast. If you like the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast, we have a show for you. We sit down with local outdoorsmen of Arkansas, Missouri, and Oklahoma to talk all things hunting, fishing, conservation, history, and culture in the Ozark Mountains region. Just like the outdoorsmen who live here, we follow the seasons and interview regional experts to discuss the pursuits of hunting turkeys, bears, and whitetail, as well as the science behind their conservation. Join me and my co-host Kyle Plunkett every Wednesday and make sure you subscribe so you don't miss an episode. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of the Southern Outdoorsman Podcast. Uh, Jacob, how you doing? Uh, fired up, man. It's, I'm always fired, especially when you have Josh Driver in the podcast. Yeah, so Josh Driver, um, what, you know, one thing I want to jump right into with Monday's episode is the whole idea of like a Bucks core area. And that was the big thing with that episode. And what Josh talked about is a Bucks core area is just a manifestation of what he needs. So it's food, cover, water, and a safe place. That's yep. what. That's all it is. And so you can kind of strip away everything else from it. And if you have food, cover, and water in a safe area, you're going to have a buck. Because it's like the, the, the area almost creates the buck. You know, it's not like the buck went and found it per se, even though he might have. But like that kind of 
that combination of thing produces that buck, and that's where you find them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that that's huge, man. And it, this is honestly a really good refresher listening to that because it, it's been so long. This was in December 2019 when we originally recorded that. And uh, it was nice going back and listening to it because I haven't listened to it in so long. And just all the little things that I completely forgot about that we talked about in that episode. So it was a, it was a fun listen. Um, but but what are your thoughts on the core area thing? Well, before we go into that, I'm going to go to the core area. I apologize to all the listeners because I forgot to mention this in the, in the intro for that episode. Uh, we are using much different equipment now and got a lot a little bit more tech savvy. <laughs> so the audio from that uh, episode, it's not terrible. Well, if you're used to like what you've been used to listening for like the last year and a half or so, or the last two years, or the last three years, really, uh, it is a little bit different. So apologize it's about a, that. It's a little bit different. We're um, clipping a little bit, growing a little hot. Absolutely. And yeah, yeah, a little background noise. Also, I will say this as well for context for that episode. We were interviewing him during our rut in Alabama, which is in December. Yeah. Um. So we, we kind of go out of a, a little bit different perspective in that episode compared to like when y'all listen to it now in September. Um. A little bit different format, but again, you can. There's a lot of takeaways from what Josh is talking about, and like he does in September and October that again we can apply down here in the southeast during this early part of the season, which is you know great timing for it. But going back to the core area thing, that is a really good point when he's talking about like the area almost like manifests the buck. Yeah. Uh, like those core areas, like those core areas are gonna be good year after year. Like, you know, every now and then you know the buck dies. Um, you know, it may go a year or two without a buck being there. But at some point you're gonna have another mature buck move into those spots. So that's what mm-hmm. Josh was talking about. It's like once you find a bunch of core areas that you're getting mature bucks in it's almost like you have a spot you've got to hunt, at least in that early part of the season, maybe even later in the part of the season, kind of, you know, post-rut, that you can kind of focus on and kill bucks. And like you said, you know, because he focuses so much time on the core areas, he doesn't really like hunting the rut because it's so, you know, that buck could be, as he says in the podcast, that that buck could be here one day, three miles the next day. Yeah. And that's awesome. Man, there's so much to talk about with this as well. Uh-huh. That also goes into when he's talking about, like, with core these core areas, especially early season core areas, how in his experience hunting Kentucky on public land, you can't, it, it's kind of hard to like completely blow that buck out of that area where he doesn't come back to it. It's like, it's possible. Like definitely enough pressure going in there. Like he may, he'll probably, he may shift areas or, you know, shift areas just a little bit where like, you're not going to see him during legal hours. Like, you know, he's going to be back a little bit farther than that thick stuff. Uh, he's going to maybe linger a little bit more before he comes out. But where a lot of guys, and you hear this all the time on the podcast, we hear this from a lot of listeners, a lot of you guys um, and viewers on, on the YouTube channel about like bumping bucks and like they're gone forever. You know, you, you see that all the time on social media, especially on Facebook. People mention all the time, like, man, I bumped the buck. See every yep. show back up again. And, he, and Josh makes a really good point. A lot of times when that happens, you know, it's kind of getting close to that rut time period when those bucks are really starting to expand their home ranges. And yeah, in that case, you know, if he feels like there's a, a, a excess pressure in one area, he might not come and revisit that during daylight hours He because he doesn't have to. Or he might just be gone because he wasn't coming back anyway. That's true as well. So you're like, man, he's gone. Like, I bumped him and, and he's gone. As Well, it's during the rut. So, you know, he's already going to be moving around a whole bunch. You know, every buck's a little bit different. They all have, like, slightly different personalities. Some are a little bit more homebodies. Some are a little bit more roamers. So that also plays into a factor for it. But I thought that was a really good point about, you know, even in his area, you know, he's like, I'm not worried about bumping that buck when I go in to scout a spot and check a spot. Mm-hmm. He's like, I just don't want to bump him multiple times yeah don't bump him over and over and over again yeah that makes total sense I, I love that and probably probably my favorite thing like my favorite theme of what he was talking about was stripping away the the basically the logic and the decision making of the deer and this kind of just for a little bit more context uh this is this is like 2019 so this is when like 
the the hunting beast was like really pot like i think kind of at its height um like it like everyone was talking about like the buck bedding and and he's bedding with this wind and he's watching that access point and he's monitoring hunters and this and that and a lot of people myself included kind of fell into this thing of where you're kind of thinking yourself in circles with these deer you're like well why is he doing that and josh made the point where it's like well it doesn't matter why he's doing it he's an animal like he can't think like a person can think you know he can't reason he can't use logic and so if you try to apply logic to what a deer is doing you're going to think yourself in a big circle because you're it just doesn't work you know like they don't think like we do and that's and that directly relates back to what he's talking about where a hub is just a manifestation of that buck's needs you know like or, or a core i meant not a hub uh where like a buck doesn't know what like a hub is or, there i go again well i mean a hub too or like a or a core area like he doesn't know what a core area is um so they're just acting based off of instinct and conditioning you know mm-hmm. if that buck is laying next to the parking lot it's because nobody hunts there and they, and he gets away with it is the is the point that josh is making he's like that buck isn't necessarily going and, and being like i know what i'm gonna do i'm gonna watch for when these hunters these bow hunters are coming into the woods and i'm gonna go to where they always park and i'm gonna wait till they get here and then i'm gonna slip out the backside, you know like I I found that part really interesting because over the years, you know, since we did that episode, I found that when I kind of go back and I, and I strip away the logic that I'm trying to apply to the deer, I always do better. Mm -hmm. You know, whenever I, I, I get in like a mental jam and I can't figure out what I want to go do, or I get stuck on a spot that it just isn't working out. It's always because of that. Most of the time it's, it's because I'm trying to apply logic to something that is not logical. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I can see that. Also, something else about, like, the core areas that I thought was fascinating is how, you know, he's gotten so good at finding these core areas on the map. You know, he'll go, like, on Onyx, pull up the map, pull up, you know, aerial imagery, and then literally pick out spots that would make sense for him as thermal, or not as thermal hubs. Nah, no, I screw but, you up Yeah, now. I know. But as core areas, and he'll go in there and run his trail cameras. And, like, one of the biggest things that he's looking for is habitat diversity. And I'll say Josh's episode has been by far probably the most impactful episode for me and Andrew, both as in some of the things that we've been focusing on the last four years, uh, you know, you know, after doing this podcast and interviewing him is, you know, focusing a lot on habitat edges, focusing a lot on training features and focusing a lot on um, uh, just habitat edges and compounding features. I'll be honest. I don't think we had ever heard about com- the term no, compounding features the, yeah, before this, this episode. Yeah, this also, I don't think we had ever heard about before this episode what a thermal hub was, what a high crow's foot is, yeah. social hubs, all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. We, me and Andrew personally learned that from this specific episode, along with you know thousands of you that listen to this podcast and been listening to the podcast for a long time. Now, a lot of your new listeners that are listening and watching right now, maybe you, you hadn't heard this episode previously, but even if you have, it's a really good refresh like what Andrew was talking about. It's a really good refresher to be able to kind of re-spark your brain and really kind of think about this kind of stuff. Because the way Josh goes about doing it, it's not overcomplicating anything. It's like, like, like Andrew was saying, you know, and Josh said in the podcast, you know, they need food, cover, and water. And that security is part of that cover aspect. Yep. With the cover, you're looking for the habitat edges. You're looking for a lot of diversity. So a lot of different uh, plant varieties in one general area. And like in our area, and kind of like what Josh talks about, in areas where there's a lot of logging that happens, like in a lot of the southeast, if you're in any kind of area, rolling rolling uh, hills where, the, you know, agriculture when it comes to like traditional farming practices, whether it's, you know, with cattle or it's with, you know, planted row crops. Outside of that, the only other kind of, you know, that kind of industry in the southeast for the most part is going to be, you know, timber harvesting uh, with a lot of timber company uh, properties, whether you're on a hunting lease 
your personal, you know, property that you own or have a lease on, or if you're hunting public land, you deal with a lot of that in the Southeast. And what Josh is talking about is trying to find a lot of those habitat diversities in those kind of areas where maybe you have a couple different age clear cuts coming up to each other, where you have one that's a, a fresh clear cut or two or three year old clear cut. You get that one that's five or six years old and you get those, those pine trees that are growing back there now 10, 12 years old, all around some of these SMZs, these streamside management area, uh, streamside management zones, where you have these hardwood drainages kind of all fingering through it. So you have a bunch of different habitat edges all in one spot. And that's the kind of things that he's kind of keying in on that, you know, has all the habitat diversity. It's got great food sources with all those clear cuts and also mass crops there. And also, um, you know, potentially, especially if one of those hardwood drainages, one of those SMZ streamside management zones has, there's a very good likelihood that one of those has water in it at some point. Um, you know, if you're in a drought, of course that stuff can go dry, but if you have some kind of stream Creek, uh, retention pond, something like that, that can hold water, He's got that there as well. So he's got everything in one spot. And once you kind of notice that and you can pick that up on a map, you can kind of walk yourself into those, some of those positions in order to get on deer. And that's something that I think we've, you know, had a lot more success with after this podcast is looking for that kind of stuff and really using it to our personal advantage and, and killing a lot more deer because of that. Again, because of what Josh has talked about in this specific episode. So again, it's been highly impactful for us, not, let alone all the listeners that's previously heard this episode and actually implemented what Josh has talked about. Um, also I'll say this when it comes to his trail cam strategy, I thought it was really interesting. So when we originally interviewed Josh, it was probably a cut, it was probably three months, three and a half months or so, uh, before we had interviewed another gentleman, uh, who's from Alabama, uh, named Jeff Homan. Um, he's been on the podcast a couple times now, maybe. Yeah. That was episode 122. And we actually did that as a like classic quote unquote throwback episode last year. Yep. So a lot of people probably heard that one. And that episode was, uh, I think, titled like Backtracking Bucks with Jeff Homan, yep. where he uses trail cameras. He does a lot like what Josh talks about, but he, he kind of does it in a slightly different way. But he will throw trail cameras out in those highly diverse areas where we have a bunch of different habitat edges all in one spot. And once he gets those bucks on camera, he'll slowly start moving those cameras back, especially if he's catching them in the evenings or even in the mornings, whether he's going catching them going back to bed or he's catching them coming from a bedding area, he'll slowly move his cameras every five to seven days slightly closer and kind of leapfrog that past camera to get closer to where he thinks that buck's going and try to catch him on camera again, you know, a little bit earlier in the evening or a little bit later in the morning as he's going back to bed or again, leaving his bed in the evening until he gets that buck, you know, right around when opening season comes and season opener happens where he's catching that buck on camera multiple times throughout the day, both in the morning and the evening during daylight hours. And that's when he knows he's ready to go kill that deer. When he has that kind of pattern, he knows he's that close to potentially where that buck's laying down and spending all of his time. Another thing I wanted to talk about, and we kind of danced around it a little bit, was the social hub versus a thermal hub thing. I found that interesting because another thing I pretty much completely forgot about from this episode, a thermal hub being where a couple of creek drainages come together at a higher elevation. So if you have your ridge system, this is going to be, Josh said, basically halfway to one three quarters of the way up the ridge. Um, whereas your social hub is going to be your huge hubs where like two major, two or three major creeks come together all the way down in the very bottoms where the, like the big creeks are, you know, not where the little dry branches and stuff go up into the hills, but where the big creeks are. Mm -hmm. And he said that, I believe he said that the social hubs are more of a rut spot for him and uh, potentially also a good camera spot as well. Same thing with thermal hubs. It's yeah. More of a rut spot. But the social hubs, uh, the way he describes in the podcast, those social hubs are catching 
again, like Andrew described, multiple massive ridge systems that all drop off at one point. You're catching doe groups that potentially live on different ridge systems where they're, if they come down to either get water or drop down at elevation to feed on mass crops or anything like that, they're all kind of congregating in that one spot and a buck can kind of cruise that area, lay down a ton of sign, uh, a lot of scrapes. You'll find a lot of rubs in those areas. I typically find a ton of scrapes in those areas. Um, and again, as Josh talks about, it's much more of a rut hunting location. Um, now I've know guys who have killed bucks early season, in those spots where they're catching a buck kind of working a Creek system up through one of those quote unquote, you can call it a social hub before he goes up on a ridge point to go bed. Yep. Uh, and, and you can definitely do that. Like one guy that comes to mind is our buddy, Bo Martonic killed a really big buck back in, I think it was 2020, 2021 yep. opening day or first couple of days of season, uh, in Pennsylvania where he did that. He found where a buck was feeding, uh, this specific buck he was trying to hunt was feeding on a clear cut. That was fairly, you know, good distance away, you know, maybe half a mile or so away um, of uh, where he thought the deer was bedding. And he was kind of working back up that drainage system before going up onto the ridge system that the buck was bedding on. And he found a, a good pinch point down that creek bottom to catch that buck slipping through and, and killed him on a morning sit. Um, so it can work in those areas, but it really the way Josh was talking about, like it's much more of a rut spot, which makes sense. Again, it's an area that not only are all these thermals dropping down, but all these deer dropping down to this one specific location. Um, and also it kind of goes back to make you think and wonder like past guests, like Michael Perry, where he's talking about hunting Creek crossings. Yep. Typically in those areas, you're going to find a ton of Creek crossings. Like yep. you're, you're going to find a spot that a lot of deer are kind of going back and forth from, you know, one ridge system to the other ridge system crossing that Creek system right there. And again, can make for a really good spot if a buck's either running a doe or he's going from one ridge system to another ridge system, he's going to go down through that social hub and come up through the other side. Um, and again, a little more random. You don't necessarily know what buck's going to come through there, but uh, as he talked about, it's a really good rut spot. But also, as Josh said, he's not much of a rut hunter because he likes to hunt specific bucks. He likes to find a specific deer and kill him on a specific pattern, that food-to-bed pattern, before the rut craze happens and that deer potentially disappears. Yeah. Uh, if, if someone is like a very hands-on type learner and they like to uh, – like do something themselves to really learn and you're still wondering about like what a thermal hub or in this case maybe more specifically a social hub looks like one way that you can do it that's very hands-on that i've i've did this like years ago when i was first learning all this stuff is if you go on onyx you can draw polygons on there and uh basically turn your topo map on find a hill find, basically find a creek with a hill next to it start at the creek uh if you got like 10 topo lines going from the bottom to, of the creek to the top of the hill, pick like the middle one and start drawing a polygon and just trace that line and go all the way around the hill. You know, at some point you might have to like kind of cut it off and and uh, like kind of jump over the top of the hill. But go follow that topo line and go all the way around the hill and then do it to the other hill across the creek. And just do that to like two or three ridge systems where you're going to go around and, and, you know, click, 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 click and draw these big polygons and then zoom out and look at what they all look like together. So you'll have like a big solid polygon, like, oh, here's one ridge system, here's one ridge system, here's one ridge system, and they're all highlighted. You just drew them in yourself, and then you can very obviously see those social hubs between them because it looks like branches of a tree. Mm -hmm. Like those creeks look like tree branches, and where there's a big split in a tree branch, that's that's your social hub. 
Um, so that's just a really hands-on way to do it. And it can be kind of helpful, like if you're struggling to pick apart like which ridge is which, because, you know, sometimes a topo map can just look like spilled spaghetti, you know, and that'll help you break it down a little bit. So that's something I've done in the past that helped me because I'm kind of that type of learner. So I just want to throw that out also, there. I, I bet someone might find that helpful. Also, another feature that Onyx Maps has that's super helpful to give you even more of a visual advantage uh, or perspective if you're, again, a much more visual learner is on the app you can switch between 2D and 3D maps. If you switch to the 3D maps on like the lower right-hand side of your phone, you can actually pan up and down and you can actually see like a 3D model of what everything mm -hmm. looks like, which will help you out even more. So especially if you're more new at trying to read a topo map. Yeah, that'll it, help you figure out a topo map. Yeah, and, and that's really nice because especially if you're in kind of hilly country, when you roll it back and you're kind of looking at the horizon uh, in that 3D maps, you'll see all the ridge systems. You'll see all the ridge points and everything in and around that area. And it really will help you even quicker look at and try to figure out, you know, is this one of these social hubs or are you looking at more of a thermal hub that's a little bit higher from the ridge system? And you can see it really, really easily, especially, again, if you're newer to reading topo maps and you're not comfortable reading topo maps, is another great way to kind of cheat the system a little bit and kind of speed up that process, that learning process along the way. Yep, absolutely. Uh, man, uh, one last thing about Josh before we get into some other stuff is he's like the poster child for just like having the utmost confidence. <laughs> it, it, it cracked me up back back when we recorded it and now again when I listen to it. Just like the utter confidence he has. He's like, well, I'll just wait for the win and I'll go in there and kill him. You know, and it, he talks like very matter of fact. He's like, I'll wait for that and then I'll kill him. Yep. You know, and uh, I, I just found that interesting because he's a good example of guys who just like they got their thing dialed. They know how to do it, and, you know, he goes out and he finds the beds, which is something that I've struggled with, you know, like I, I've never really had success doing that. Josh has. Mm -hmm. Kind of goes back to the thing about different, you know, different things work for different folks. Uh, but also Josh, again, going back to, like, applying logic to stuff, he he also had the confidence in those beds, I think partly, because he wasn't, he, he doesn't necessarily follow the, uh, the wind-based bedding thing. He's like, they find a bed, and they're going to bed there if they want to. They're, if he wants to bed there, he's going to be there. Mm -hmm. It doesn't matter what the wind is, you know. And, and that's something that, looking back, I think of all the beds I've found, hundreds of beds over the years, that's the only explanation. Because when you try to make it work in your head again, you sit there and you start thinking in circles. Yep. And I, I think that's one thing that maybe gave him a lot of confidence and, and kind of gave him an edge is, uh, is again, just not – a letting yourself apply that logic to the deer and uh and man just the way he talks about it so matter of fact i'm like i, I want to get there one day <laughs> you know i want to be able to talk with that amount of confidence well you know what's hilarious when you listen to that episode um and it was again you me and mike were on there then he talks about the buck that 164 inch buck that he killed that was like betting next to that little river oh yeah and like when he sh shot it and everything that we that all went at the same time <laughs> i mean at the same time it was like it was like core grabbed it was, was hilarious so and like when we were listening to it today in the truck, kind of getting a refresher on this episode because it's been a while since I've listened to it. I was laughing so hard at that. I, I laughed at that part. And yeah. it, but again, this is like an extremely impactful episode. Like this is, if someone ever asks us, you know, of all the episodes you've done, like what is that top one or two episodes that you'd recommend for new listeners? It's this episode. Every time. Uh, it's this episode. Yep. Um, you know, it might not apply directly everywhere. You know, if you're in an area maybe without all the topography features and a lot more flatland, you can still focus on the habitat edges. You know, no matter whether, you know, if you're in a big river bombs, yeah, you maybe don't have the clear cuts. You don't have all those kind of habitat edges, but you can find fallen trees. You can find where windstorms have come through or tornadoes have come through and blown a lot of timber down. That makes a habitat edge. That makes a, that makes an edge that the deer will use. 
and you can kind of look at that and put, play off that. Now, the thing is, with those kind of areas, it's a lot more boots on the ground because some of that won't show up on a map. Some of it depend on, you know, your maps for that area and how Onyx looks in your area. It may not show that, so a lot of times you just have to walk into the, one of those spots, and then you realize that, hey, man, there's some really nice edges, uh, habitat edges, inside this expanse of hardwood timber down these bottoms that maybe I couldn't see from the maps, but when I got in here, I could see it. I could see how the deer are using it, and then I can kind of go off of what Josh is talking about and applying it. Now, another thing I forgot to mention earlier, I was kind of going this direction, I got to sidetracked, is Josh's perspective on running trail cameras. Now, he is a diehard uh, trail cam user when it comes to, you know, he's checking those cameras every five to six, seven days. Uh, and if he doesn't have a buck on it in that time period, especially a buck that he wants to shoot, he's moving that camera. He's not just leaving it there. And he mentioned, it's a good quote from this episode, I'm hunt, oh. I'm not I'm not letting the buck hunt for my camera and try to find my camera in order for me to get him on camera. I'm hunting for that buck with my trail cameras. Like I'm moving him until I get him on camera. If I get him on camera once, okay, I'm going to keep moving him until I get up, get him on camera multiple times in yep. with some kind of consistency on, on a basis, on a consistent basis, and then keying in on that. And that's how he's building his confidence in order how and when to go about hunting that buck, picking his tree in the whole nine yards. I'm glad you remembered that. That's a that was a great quote. Like I'm not going to let the buck find my camera or something like or 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 like people are waiting on bucks to find their cameras. They should be finding the bucks with their cameras. Yeah, and this is a really good aspect and a really, like really good point that you know, if you're hunting private land and like some of these states in the southeast that do allow baiting and you've got corn piles or rice bran or whatever you know you have dumped out for deer whether you're using a feeder or just dumped on the ground that big buck shows up and it's two hours after dark don't try to kill that buck on that on that corn pile <laughs> i mean start backtracking kind of using like from episode 122 with uh with uh jeff homan and, and what uh josh driver talked about in this episode Start moving those cameras back in the direction that buck's coming from in the evenings until you try to catch him. You know, maybe you move it 100 yards further back and you catch him 45 minutes sooner. And like, okay, cool. Now you kind of leapfrog again another 100 yards and try to catch him on a camera again another 45 minutes sooner until you get to the point that hopefully, of course, he's still on your property. Now, if he's off your property and coming to your property after dark, you know, you don't have anything to work on. But if you are in a bigger hunting club, you're on a bigger lease, uh, or you're on public land, you could actually do that. But especially for the guys on, you know, private land, hunting clubs, leases, private farm, if you can run bait, implement that. Don't wait for that buck to miraculously show up on your bait pile during daylight to go hunt it. Try to backtrack that buck a little bit further as long as you have the property to do so in order to catch him on camera. And then you'll have a lot more confidence trying to hunt that buck, especially if you're trying to kill him early season before maybe some of your neighbors get opportunities at him. Yeah, absolutely, 100%. I, I love it. I love it. Uh, so we got a lot of other stuff to talk about, too. Um, I, uh, so we covered the Tennessee Velvet Hunt last week. Uh, we had a dove hunt, had a, a great dove hunt. Shout out to our buddy Kyle Sides, Masio Properties. Yep. Uh, we were able to go hunt his place, and man, that was a, that was a great shoot. We had a really good time. Got some <laughs> yeah. dog work in. Man, it was fun. It was like the nicest opening day of dove season <laughs> of my life. Yeah. It was yeah. overcast. It was kind of breezy. It's there like, was times where it kind of settled and got real like muggy. muggy. Yeah. But hey, look, I didn't get sunburned, and I get sunburned every every year on dove, opening day of dove season yeah it was like 85 88 degrees over like a vacation compared oh, to what it, we've had and then also you mentioned this you're like you're like man this is the most like laid back dove hunt i've ever done because typically when we've hunted public land oh bro on dove shoots like you got to get there at daylight or before daylight to kind of you know quote unquote claim your spot of where you're going to sit at on like one of the dove fields versus with this we all went out to lunch there's like 20 of us counting the kids and everything mm-hmm. we all go grab lunch 
you know, kind of ease back to the truck, kind of drive over to the farm, go yep. pick up some ice on the way it's there. It's 1.30, bro. Yeah, we get out there. It's like 1.30. It's like, and, you know, it opens at noon in Alabama uh, for opening day. And we just kind of ease out there. And, yep. you know, we get guys with side-by-sides. You know, we all kind of pull our trucks down through the pastures and everything because it's a big cattle farm that uh, Kyle and his family have. Um, kind of pull through the pastures. We all park in a spot. You know, they got a few side-by-sides running people out to this big dove field. And, uh, dude, it was nice. I'm like, dude, this is, this is pretty handy. It was awesome. And, uh, and, it was awesome. And also what made it even better is, you know, while we're doing that, you know, some guys go out to the field and they're all in positions. People start shooting because, you know, doves are already flying. And uh, we start having some circles. I'm like, man, I want to grab my shotgun. Like, <laughs> I'm going to try to shoot one right here at the truck. And, dude, I get my shotgun loaded up. Had two flying over the tree line. I'm like, oh, yeah, this this it. And, dude, they flew by, dude, perfect, just crossing shot. First shot, dropped one. I'm like, oh, it's going to be a good day. It's going to be a real good day. <laughs> right there at the truck. Oh, dude. It was, I'm like, that's, my, that's gonna, my kind of dove hunt, man. That yeah. was a fun hunt, dude. Yeah. That, was a, that was a good way to kick off hunting season, man, or at least my hunting season. You mm-hmm. already kicked yours off. Yep. Um, but so we, we did that, and then we've been doing a little bit of scouting uh, slash uh, spot prepping at the club. Mm-hmm. I think we got a lot to talk about right there. Um. A couple weeks back, we talked about it on here. Um, me and my stepdad, Mike, went out and we found some feed trees. Basically, we found uh, no white oaks that had that we could see acorns in. We could not. I couldn't see them with the binos. I was carrying some uh, eight power um, mm-hmm. binos. Couldn't see any in the white oaks, but I did find some in water oaks. And the water oaks specifically were just loaded down, yep. like like very impressive uh, mass crop this year. Uh, same thing with red oaks. Found them with some red oaks. Found some persimmon trees, and we wanted to go back and prep this one particular spot, uh, just because it's kind of speaking of like a like a compounding feature. Mm-hmm. There's there's a pine thicket with a ditch coming out of it that kind of empties out right where there is a water oak on the edge of that thicket. It's a little SMZ. It's got some timber on it. Yeah, it's got a little bit of timber on it, but it comes down out of the pine thicket and empties out right there there's deer traveling on it there were scrapes there last year when we initially found it we found it when we were blood trailing a doe i shot out there last year and there's a creek crossing so it's adjacent to the creek and there's a pretty nice creek crossing that we also found with that doe last year and this oak is just kind of like right there on the edge and i think it's going to be a really good spot where you're going to have deer traveling the edge but also coming down out of the pine thicket so again you get that t-shaped travel where they're kind of intersecting each other and then also i think you're going to have deer parallel in the creek so it's just got a lot going for it and there's also some more oaks in there kind of around that creek yeah. that you'd be able to shoot to mm-hmm. but more importantly it's just going to hold deer in the area so i wanted to go back in there and basically prep that spot because the timber's pretty pretty thick like there's a good understory and it'd be just kind of difficult to get a shot so i brought the pole saw in there and uh, we went in there and started prepping that spot, and dude, we got it looking good, yep. good. We got nice two nice lanes cut. You'd be able to see a lot. It's like a big four trunked maple tree that kind of comes up and splits. Like they're never gonna see you up in there. You got yeah. great cover from both sides. It's just, it's just a spot just made in heaven, man. Now we prepped it, and I'm probably gonna hunt it a bunch of times, never see anything. <laughs> That'd be my luck. But threw a camera out too, made a little threw a, open up the scrape. A few quick cameras out well in that spot we threw threw a camera out and then we yep. threw another one on that creek crossing uh one kind of neat thing about that spot too is that it's also kind of a natural pinch point mm-hmm. just because of how the creek meanders through there and it's kind of channeled out a little bit and it's kind of dug dug out some channels that are up in the woods a little bit and it's not like a hard pinch point or anything it's not like a bluff but it does kind of um i don't know like persuade movement i guess yeah one thing we've noticed on that creek on that property is 
it's a very shallow creek for the most part. I mean, you could with hip waders, you could walk up majority of the whole creek without yep. going over your hip waders. But some of it's very gradual. Like the 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 land is really gradual coming down to the water, so like you can easily you know just walk right down, and that's where you find a lot of crossings at. Yep. And other places like what you're talking about, where it's a little more it meanders a little bit more, it's got a little more curves to the creek, mm-hmm. and it cuts out the bank. You know, you got a three, four, five foot tall bank. Yeah. Even though the water's not very deep, the water might only be you know sixteen, eighteen inches deep. You don't really, we don't really see or haven't really seen a bunch of crossing on those little drops. Yeah. It's like they're kind of working their way a little bit further around until they get to a much more gentle slope to cross the creek. Yes. Uh, which is which is pretty nice. And again, in that spot, you've got one of those cut banks right adjacent to the tree stand, probably 40 yards from the tree stand. Yeah, exactly. It's uh, it's it's probably it's probably more like 30, 35. And when we were walking in there, we brought Tiffany and Piper with us because Tiffany wanted to be out there with us and, and kind of see where we're hunting. And, and Tiffany's very interested in actually trying to kill a deer this year. You know, like... Uh, she actually asked if I could put her in for some SOA hunts. I was like, heck yeah, I can put you in and I'll be your guest. Like, this is going to be I'm doubling my odds, bro. Dang, so, that's, oh man, that's, that's a good point. That's why you should get married, dude. Um, <sighs> yeah. So we were walking in, we had prepped a spot, uh, the day before. Mm-hmm. So we went out, uh, what was it? Sunday and Monday because mm-hmm. Labor Day. And we had prepped that spot the day before we were going back in Monday to change the cameras out. Cause we put two cell cams out and neither of them were working. So we went back in to go ahead and change it. And you and Mike were like kind of behind us and me and her were walking up front and we were just kind of walking and talking and we got to this, the, basically where the tree stand was and she didn't know where we were, but I was like, Hey, you see how like the creek meanders and I'm explaining that? She's like, she basically said something like, well, would this be like a pinch point? And I'm like, yes, because of how the creek comes in right here. And you see how it like pinches in and how we're naturally just kind of flowing through this one spot. Mm-hmm. She's like, yeah, like we just kind of, it's like the path of least resistance. I was like, well, there's the tree. And she was like, oh my gosh, you know, because the tree was like right there behind yeah. us. I'm like, this is what the deer are going to, like, that's how the deer perceives this. They're just going to be kind of meandering through here, hopefully. And they're just naturally going to want to walk around the edge of this this cut bank that they can easily climb over they can easily jump down but it's just easy walking for them you know if they if they don't have a reason to not walk there mm-hmm. and uh and so i just thought that was kind of cool like with her that was kind of fun no that is a hot tip that some people might have just overheard or overlooked um is when you're out scouting and you're walking areas especially whether it's flatland whether it's hill country or mountain stuff when you're in a spot and you're like man this is pretty easy walking especially if it's an area that's in general isn't super easy walking if you start looking down you're gonna see deer tracks like the deer like if, if you are taking the path of least resistance when you're scouting a lot of the deer are gonna do the exact same thing mature buck may or may not depending on the time of the year but your general deer your does your young bucks are gonna be on that path of travel as well so that's a really big thing you know if you're walking through a pine thicket and it's crazy thick and you get to like a little opening a logging road or something like that or old skid skid uh, skid steer uh, road that like uh you know cuts through those that pine thicket you're going to find deer sign. You're going to find scrapes. You're going to find rubs there. And you're also going to find trails on those opening areas just because it's a path of least resistance for those deer. And again, down those river bottoms, those creek bottoms, it's like you were kind of like meandering through. And it's like, you know, there's kind of scattered deer. So the second it pinches down, it's like, oh, okay, here's a lot of tracks. Like they're kind of, they're pinching down this one spot. And if you kind of start paying attention to that from your perspective of when you're walking through and like, man, this is like, this is, you know, in general, like a fairly easy walk going through this stuff uh, compared to everything else around it. Typically you're going to find a lot of deer on there. And that's also a great spot to put trail cameras. Like those path of least resistance 
going through some of that cover around different obstructions is a spot that if you put a trail camera there, there's a very good likelihood you're going to get some deer on camera. You may or may not get a mature buck, but you're probably going to get some deer on camera if you focus on some of that stuff when you're actually out there scouting. Yeah, 100%. Um, we also, man, we, we, so we already had some trail cameras out there and basically we were focusing on this Creek cross all, on a bunch of different Creek crossings because this property is basically cut right in half with that Creek. And so, I mean, it, obviously it stands to reason that if deer are going to be going back and forth across the property, they have to cross that Creek. Mm-hmm. And again, they can kind of cross it wherever they want. But one thing that we've quitty, pretty quickly found out is even though the creek is, I mean, maybe halfway up your calf, like we've waded and fished it a couple times, most of the creek is like barely deeper than ankle deep. It's a very shallow, very rocky creek, but there's still some little shoals in it every once in a while where the water's just coming down over some rocks. The deer cross that. They love crossing that for some reason. They can cross wherever they want and hardly get wet, but for some reason they love crossing those little shoals. And so Mike and I have put out cameras over the course of summer and maybe we weren't looking right at the shoal, but this is actually what happened with a couple cameras. And this is another thing that Josh Driver talked about is if he knows there's deer in the area, sometimes he won't really move the camera, so he'll just kind of adjust them. Like maybe he moves it over here to this tree, or maybe he just turns it the other direction on a tree. And we did that with like four cameras that were on this creek. They, We moved them, you know, instead of on this tree looking upstream, we moved them 20 yards further upstream looking back downstream because we had a better view of that little shoal that we think they're walking across because we were like getting bits and pieces of deer on camera or, or I felt like we were getting a lot of misses. Like uh, there was one camera in particular that never really got any deer pictures as a cell camera. It never sent us a deer picture and it was just a bunch of coons on there. And uh, when we walked in there and checked it, there was fresh tracks on that trail. I'm like, we had it positioned wrong. It wasn't catching these deer. And looking back, it did catch a couple deer and just didn't send us the pictures because I cannot find a reliable trail or a cell camera these days. Um, but we ended up checking the camera and it did have a couple different deer on it. Mm-hmm. So we made some micro adjustments over the summer and uh, and rechecked them. And in one spot in particular, we had a cell camera on one side of the tree, like kind of looking down past the shoal. And then we put a just a regular uh, browning trail camera, not a cellular camera, on the other side of the same tree looking right at the shoal. And originally we had had that cell camera basic, on a tree basically right where that shoal hit the bank. <laughs> and we were kind of looking up past the shoal. And we were getting deer like right in front of the camera. Like they were coming up out of the water and we were getting just like fur on the camera. So we moved it like 10 yards away and kind of pointed it at the shoal. And then, but there was another trail a little bit further downstream. So we put the cell camera looking downstream, the other one looking upstream. Mm-hmm. On that cell camera, we, we, we got some bucks. We got a decent, decent rack buck on it, a couple spikes, and a bunch of does. Mm-hmm. A bunch of does crossing that one. And I was telling Mike, because he was kind of discouraged about it. Um, he kind of sounded discouraged about what we were getting on that camera. I was like, let's go check that other one because. I really think that there's bucks you because we were getting like small bucks crossing that. I'm like, I bet they're in a bachelor group and the bigger bucks are walking across that shoal. And Mr. Subordinate over here is having to walk through the chest deep water because Mr. Mr. Biggs over there, you know, walking across that shoal. And so we go in there and we check that sucker and I'll be danged if there wasn't a nice buck on it, baby. Come on, there was a there was a couple nice deer on it, but. One in particular that I'm very excited Not about. Nice. It was three big deer, and it was like yeah, mid July when you had them on camera. Yeah, the first time we got them on camera was mid July, and uh, yeah, clean ten point baby. I'm talking about 
clean which it Big was it, again it was a really good deer but it didn't get me like crazy excited like oh i got pretty excited i, I know i it, oh, that's really good deer but it's not like at, at the time your like, eyeballs aren't popping yeah out of I'm, your like, I'm like that's a that's a it's a mature buck but he's not he's not crazy but he's a really like is a really awesome buck but not like incredible because this kind of plays into the story a little bit later on um this is in july when we get him on camera yeah when y'all got him on camera yep there's also in that bachelor group because again what you're mentioning for for listeners that maybe didn't catch it there's two trail cameras on the same tree like yes. the exact same tree they're not separate they're on the same tree one's facing one direction down the creek and one's facing the other direction kind of up the creek a little bit yep um and this happened like the bucks that were kind of they were kind of crossing a little bit more upstream through that shoal. That's where you got these mature bucks camera. And there's a a really big six point. There's that ten point, and then there's like a freaking magnum eight point that came through. Yep. Uh, that you only get one video of, and yep. he's kind of like crossing even higher up than these other deer. And like you, you kind of slow mo zoom in on them. Like that is a very impressive deer. Like that's well, a very and so if he was if he was that big at that point, I wonder how big he is. Okay, that's that's what kind of so, plays into so, what we're talking about. Yeah, that ten point. So uh, also about the, uh, before you go into that, you kind of mentioned this, but I want you because you've mentioned it. You kind of mentioned what a shoal is, but you mentioned shoal a ton. Okay. Give a visual. What? Well, visually, what does a shoal look like? Like, like if you're walking up the creek and you see the water where it's like coming down over the rocks, like where it's real shallow and it's coming down. Not blow. Not like big boulders. No, not but, like a waterfall, but it's just like it's trickling over the rocks, you yeah. know. And it's just a real shallow spot. So if you're walking and the water's knee deep, and then all of a sudden you're walking up where it's coming down the rocks and it's like ankle deep, that's a shoal. It's like the shoals is like where the bedrock kind of comes up higher in the creek. So there's like an elevation drop right there. Some rivers or some creeks, it's more aggressive than others. But in this area, it's very gradual. But yeah. it goes from like, like it's you just said, gravel. It goes from like lower thigh deep water to literally ankle deep water. Yep. Like within 15 feet. Yeah, they're okay? crossing that shoal. They're crossing that shoal. So yeah, exactly. So this ten point, a little bit more about him. Uh, he hit his frame is like when we got that first video, his frame is very impressive. He's he's tall and he's wide. Like he's well outside the ears. He's got good mass. You know, he's in velvet, so take it with a grain of salt. But frame is good and tine length, but his tine length wasn't crazy. I mean, it was good, but like you were saying, it's not crazy. Yeah. And then we checked another camera that mm-hmm. he was on, like a like the next day. It, yeah, the next day we checked the camera, but he was on that camera like three weeks later, I think it was, and he put some time so, length on, baby. So when he, it, it, it's a lot, it's a lot better view that deer. When, which we gotta mention something from the first camera, but uh, yeah, yeah, when he was on the second camera, I didn't even think it was the same deer. Yeah, like he was that much bigger. He went from like, like again, a really good deer, like a very very good deer. Anybody and their mother would shoot this buck, to then. Three weeks later, being like, I don't even recognize it. it's the same deer. Which it's the same deer. It's exactly the same deer, but he grew a lot more, longer main beams, much longer times. It went from like his G fours uh, in the first video, where like I mean maybe two and a half inches tall, something like that, maybe like yeah, you yeah. know not not very big, um, to like later they're four and a half, maybe yeah, probably four and a half inches in length. Yeah, you know G twos almost double, G threes nearly doubled. Brow times got bigger, main beams got bigger, put more mass on, and I'm like, and he's right there in front of the camera, and there's a couple of really good shots of him in front of the camera crossing yeah. the creek in this other spot, and I'm like, that went from being like a really good deer to like that is a very big deer.
Houndstooth Game Call's Dixie Hen Slate was just voted the overall best turkey call by Field and Stream Outdoors, and trust me, it's super easy to run and be extremely dynamic when you're in the turkey woods. Now, we've mentioned a couple of these calls in the past, like the Spur Master and the Success Call in a past episode with both Gary Vines and Lyle Gilbert of Houndstooth Game Calls. And it was funny enough, y'all actually bought every Spur Master call and Success Call they had. Now, pay attention to their website. They're going to have some more come up in stock in the next few days. So when they come available, make sure you get one if you did not purchase one before they sold out last time. Both the Spurmaster and the Success Call are fantastic for hunting high-pressure turkeys, whether you're on a hunting club where you have a lot of other members hunting those same turkeys, or if you're on public land. Again, both of those calls will make you sound a little bit different from everybody else and be a lot more subtle in your calling technique and be able to really help close those distance with those gobblers. So if you want to give Houndstooth Game Calls a try, go to houndstoothgamecalls.com. Use the promo code SOP24. Again, promo code SOP24 for 15% off houndtoothgamecalls.com. True Lock Chokes has been made in Georgia since 1981 and offering a wide range of chokes, over 2,000 different chokes for all kinds of shooting activities. You might be wondering why you'd want to purchase a True Lock Choke, and it's to improve your shotgun performance. Absolutely guaranteed. And as a great example, we have Andrew Maxwell here. And, uh, Andrew, you've had some pretty good luck, again, kind of switching out chokes and trying out the Precision Hunter choke from True Lock. So, Andrew, what's been your experience so far? Yeah, I've always, I've used the same choke for several years now. I never really thought much of it, and I got the True Lock choke in. I patterned my gun with the first choke at uh, 30 and 50, and then I switched to the True Lock and changed from 30 to 50. And the 50-yard pattern on my gun with the True Lock choke is unbelievable like everybody's jaws were dropping like when we were out there with mike and sam we were all super impressed i mean it's throwing a better pattern at 50 now than it was throwing at 40 before my old choke and andrew you're shooting the precision hunter choke from true lock it's a great option same chokes i have in my shotgun so guys if you want to give true lock a shot this spring you could head over to truelockchokes.com that's t-r-u L-O-C-K chokes.com. You can also use the promo code Southern at checkout at truelockchokes.com and save 10% on your order. Again, give TrueLock a shot this spring, especially if you're not happy with the performance of your shotgun and shoot with a more deadly pattern with TrueLock. He's like, a, he's a stuck. And that eight point that we got that one video of, he was running by himself, but I'm very curious to see what, because I don't know, they're pro- I, I guess they might all be a little bit different. Like I, I don't know if they hit growth spurts or whatever. Uh, I'd love to talk to a biologist about that, but I would love to see what he might have turned Cause, into. Because he just, man, he just swoops forward. He's huge. Well, man. see that eight point during that same time three weeks previously is like size wise, frame wise, as big as the ten point was yes. three weeks later. Yes. So it's yes. like, like you said, is it a different growth spurt, or is truly did that buck had three or four more weeks of growth? <sighs> Which, if that's the case, and he actually kept growing... He will be a magnum. Dude, I'm telling you. Like, I don't you. even want to put a number on it, but he will be... Put it, put a number on it. Throw, throw it out there. I mean, there's a there's a very good chance if he kept doing what he was doing, he'd be 140-inch plus 8-point. Yeah. I mean, legitimately. That's like, a, like, a legitimate deer of that size. That's a big 8-point, um, baby. And, you know, and this 10-point's not far off, but, yeah. like, the 8-point is was just mass, a crazy long main beans, big G2s, big G3s. Big brows back again three weeks previously, and we yeah. haven't got another. You haven't got another photo of that deer or mm-hmm. video of that deer, mm-hmm. um, which is just crazy. Again, because it's like okay, like if there's a deer like that running around out there, like dude, I might, I might need to get a spot in this club next year. Because I'm not, I'm a guest. I get to go like one or two times, maybe the whole year. Dude, if you and you basically live on the edge of the club, dude, you can yeah. hunt it so much. You can yeah. hunt it like every day. Yeah, just burn the whole place down with all my scent. But honestly, also another interesting factor, uh, not interesting, but interesting uh, thing that we 
noticed on the very first video that we had at the 10 point and the six point that were kind of like go, you know, hanging out together mm-hmm. was that the 10 point when he was, it was, you know, middle of the afternoon, probably four o'clock in the afternoon, late afternoon. And he's like walking out in that water and he starts dipping his antlers down in the water. Oh, that was cool. He's not even drinking. He's like dip, dipping one main beam in the water. He picks up drips off then he'll walk a little bit more and he'll dip the other side in the water. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I'll put this on the video podcast so people can see it. Yeah. So And, uh, oh, yeah, so another reason to go to YouTube, guys. Yeah, go to YouTube podcast. if you want to see it. He's dipping his antlers in the water. It's cool. And it's super fascinating. Like, it's because I've never, you, just, you know, that's one thing. That's the, that is one of the biggest reasons why I love putting trail cameras on video mode. Oh, yeah. Instead of just photo mode. Because, first of all, this is a cool factor. I kind of see him do that. Yeah. But you learn so much more with a video, even if it's a 10 second long video, uh, and some of those cameras will run like 30 seconds or 60 second long videos if you, if you want the card space for it. Yeah. Uh, don't do that if you're, you know, on private land over a bait pile, like you're just, you're going to fill up a card in a week. But if you're on like travel corridors, it's not a bad idea, especially as you get close to the rut to do a longer video because you might have a doe run by and 20 seconds later, a buck's chasing her. Oh yeah. Um, but it's like, you just learn so much from the video, but that was a, this a really cool thing that he was doing. Just kind of dipping those antlers in the water, let them drip yeah. and then dipping the other side. That, in. that was really cool. And just another thing about where that buck is living again, tying this back into Josh driver, he's living it. I mean, it checks all the boxes. It's a, it's a secure area that, uh, has food cover and water. Yep. So it's an area that nobody really hunts. It's like kind of away from everything it's close to the uh, the pinout board, which everybody, you know, like nobody goes and hunts the mm-hmm. pinout board. So it's kind of like on that end of the property that nobody really hunts. You know, there's there's a couple, there there are a couple areas around there, like Greenfield specifically, that people hunt pretty hard. But where he's hanging out, you know, he's he's flying under every, everybody's radar. Yeah. And if you, you know, if you look at that area, that, that kind of northern end of the property, it's very diverse so you've got you've got different age pines you got thin pines you've got fresh cut over you've got eight nine-year-old pines that are really thick underneath mm-hmm. so it's got everything that he needs you know from a diversity standpoint it's got oaks and everything that he's going to be eating on in the fall but also it's got ample browse in those pines yep. and that cut over it's all good cover i mean he's in he's in a lot of really good cover and again, he's in that he's in that space that no one's gonna really mess with him in. Also, he's in an area that I'm wondering how much he'll shift come a little bit like closer to bow season because bow season yeah. will open to October 14th uh, in this area. But you know, he's in an area that has a lot of shade right now. He's got some thick cover, but he's definitely in an area with a lot of shade. I wonder how much he'll move when a lot of those leaves start falling. Mm-hmm. And it's like, okay, maybe he doesn't necessarily want that shade and kind of getting a little more kind of secluded cover and how he potentially shifts. Yeah. But but again, long story short, 10 points, big deer. Real big, big deer. And the 8 points are big deer. And the 6, the, the six point. The 6 point is a great deer, The too. 6 point, he's probably, he's on that verge. He's probably three and a half year old. He might be four and a half, or like, you know, four-year-old deer. Uh, but just a very, very impressive six point. Very impressive yeah. six point. Um, and, uh, you know, it's one of those things that, like, and all, well, not just that, but you had some other deer on camera. It's like some, there was a two and a half year old, maybe nine or ten point that you caught on the video mm-hmm. from the first camera pull. Yeah. Yeah. That, like, if, and you can tell it's a two and a half. I mean, he's just yeah, lanky he, legs, small little body, but he's got a really nice frame. If that deer can make it a couple of years, yep. he will be a, a slammer. Yeah, he will yeah. be such a, oh my God, he'll be such a good deer. Such a good deer if he can make it. Um, so anyway, so that, that's also really good. Cause that's one thing I noticed is like, you know, you had a, we got, there's probably, you know, three really good shooters that you got on camera, you know, that big eight, the 10 point, and then, uh, the big six, but you've got like a lot of like other, like you call them like your up and cumber bucks or yeah. up, up and coming bucks. Yeah. Um, 
that like if they get another year or two or even three on them, like you're gonna like it's another great crop of deer. Yeah, and it comes to find out, like last year, they didn't kill that many deer on that place, right? I don't think they did. So I'm gonna find out more when we do our actual work day, mm-hmm. and I, and I'm gonna kind of you know be picking everyone's brain and, and asking some questions. Uh, I only know of one buck that was shot last year, and out of the deer that we have on camera, he would have been like the fourth biggest. So <laughs> that's the only buck I know that was shot out there. There were some does killed. Uh, but the only buck that I know of that was shot out there, and I got a picture of it, he would have been probably like the fourth, maybe the fifth no, biggest. Let me tell you something funny. So last year we ran trail cameras out there, and you picked up a couple nice deer, but nothing that nah, nothing that really like would get me fired up to pay what money you pay for in this club. Nah, okay. Yeah. And it's like all of a sudden you just kind of shift a little bit on the property, and oh. there's there's bucks that were probably shooters last year, no doubt that just you never got on trail camera. Yep. And you had trail cameras. In the vicinity of where these yeah, I had are it, I had them close, like same ridge system um, in one case, and then uh, just like on random creek crossings mm-hmm. and stuff, and then or actually road crossings specifically yeah. last year. I had them on road crossings, and and I got after season, I got a nice ten point on camera. It could be the same deer. I'd have to go back and look and see if it. If he it, did, he blew up massive. Yeah, he might have. Um, and it was in the same general area that I had him, but. Yep. Uh, so there was that deer, and then I got a like a blurry video of a buck running from some dogs. That was a good that, deer. That was a good deer. You can tell he's got a good frame, but you really can't tell anything about him. Mm-hmm. And other than that, I mean, I got a big six on camera last year that was kind of borderline. I don't know if it's the same six we got on camera this year, but you know he was okay. He was like, I was looking at that deer, and I was like, if he comes by, I might shoot him. Like, I'll just have to see how I'm feeling at the time. Yeah. But other than that, yeah, I didn't get a lot of good stuff on the camera, and I almost switched clubs, but I thought about it, and I was like, you know what? Like, I haven't I haven't put a lot of time into this club yet. I didn't run cameras out here last year like I should have. Mm-hmm. Now I've got a year of history with the place. I have a year of knowing where I hunted, but also have a year of knowing where everyone else was hunting the whole time. Mm-hmm. So now I can kind of fine-tune it. And so I think we talked about this last year. It's that, like, hey, year two – of a spot that's when you're like really starting to dial you well, know that's what kevin Tolis talked about going to another episode that we've done uh kevin Tolis, i don't remember the episode number he was on uh but we did a whole episode of how he hunts hunting clubs he's a guy from alabama he's been on the podcast maybe a couple times now um but he's had a ton of success killing really big deer on hunting clubs that kind of fly under the radar of a lot of other hunters um and he always talked about like year one was kind of like a a little bit of a crapshoot. You're just kind of learning the property. You might luck into one, but really you're trying to figure out where everybody else hunts year yeah. one, and you're taking that information into scouting for year two, and then year two is when you capitalize on those big deer. Yep. Um, and that you're kind of in that kind of space now after knowing like where a lot of guys hunted and where they yeah. didn't hunt. And the funny thing is where we we're, – we're like that – that like the big ten, the six, and those eight, that eight, and everything's all on camera is a spot that we – turkey hunted and we actually found that spot during turkey season as in walking yep. through and we're like dude this sets up perfectly for early season yes. you know you get the oaks there you get that kind of you know little rugged terrain you get the water you get the pines you get everything in this one spot and it's like we were walking through and there was some old rut sign but some really big trails i'm like dude this this gotta be the spot and you have yep. a camera kind of down there off that little spot and down the creek and got some really good deer on camera but also yep. it shows you a little bit about having patience in a spot we're like if you're all if you are focused on one of these creek crossings it's like just because you're shooting at one creek crossing doesn't mean they could be crossing behind the camera. Yeah. Especially in this area that's fairly rocky. So, like, you don't have tracks in the water. You don't have tracks on the edge of the bank, typically. Um, so, it's more so just kind of going off of, like, you got to almost get out of the water and walk yeah. up on the banks to try to find the tracks. 
And if it wasn't for you guys being a little more patient and kind of adjusting cameras, you probably would have never known that mm-hmm. buck was there, at yeah. least during that time period. Yeah, exactly. I'm really glad we got them on camera because you could tell, like, Mike was super excited about it, which I was happy about. Because before, you know, we were getting spikes and, like, three points on camera and, like, random stuff like that. And he's like, well, anything's on the menu this year because he's still trying to get his first deer. And I'm like, yeah, I know, but, like, I promise there's bigger deer out here. Like, let's just give it some time. Yep. And, yeah, dude, when I saw that 10-point that walk into the frame, I was like, oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, I mean, for sure. And and it kind of goes back to, like, the second camera pull that we did the next day. Well, we got him, and, again, mm-hmm. he's still running with that 6-point, and the 6-point got a little bit bigger, too, but didn't nearly grow as much as the 10-point did, and the 10-point's just impressive. He just, God, it's such a beautiful deer. Um, and... I'm trying to think. You got him on camera. What was the date on that? Like the 14th? It was, yeah, it was mid-August. So he's probably going he, – he might grow a little bit more, but he's probably just kind of going through like that hardening process yeah. before he sheds the velvet. Um, and actually, you thought you had one deer. It might have been that, that younger 10-point or 9-point, whatever, that was running on the first camera pool. You thought he might have been hard-horned by then. Yeah. Look at the video. Well, no, no, no. That, that video was from like September 2nd. Okay. So, uh, so it was like the night before we pulled that camera, I think is when he came through there mm-hmm. and it's hard to tell cause it's kind of foggy, but I mean, his antlers compared to the other deer that we had, they just look like real sharp. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think he might've shed. I'm not, I'm not super like, I, I don't know if I'd bet money on it or not, but cause it seems kind of early, mm-hmm. but then again, I don't know. And I don't, I don't really know when they shed velvet in this area. Cause uh, you know, I didn't really run cameras out there like I should have last year. Um, but you know, it just goes to show that. No matter if you're hunting public or if you're hunting a club or what or a permission property, like you should always look at wherever you're hunting as a multi-year investment, in my opinion, because you're gonna get like the better stuff out of it year two, three, four. Like that's when it's gonna really start paying dividends. Is when you got some history with it, and you're like, oh, now I know what to do, you know. And that's kind of how I feel with the club now. So we found them. Now it's just a we got to stay with them. And, and hopefully predict where he's going to shift to. Um, I, I think he's going to shift, but I don't think he's going to shift that far. I think I know where he'll be. And uh, and hopefully getting him killed, you yeah. know, when, when the time comes. Awesome. So. Well, we get some Q&As. Yes, sir. We got some Q&As. I'm excited. I'm excited about it. Um, yep. So real quick, guys, uh, again, this part, this segment of these uh, Breakdown Outro episodes, uh, kind of going through some Q&As. So, uh, you guys can go down in the show notes or in the st- description of this video if you're on YouTube. Click the link says uh, for listener Q&A. You can leave us a, a question that we'll try to answer on these outro episodes. We've had a bunch of them come in. They've been great. It's been one of my favorite segments. And Andrew's one of his favorite segments as well of doing these breakdown outro episodes for you guys. So, again, you can check that out. Super easy. Uh, down in the show notes, you can leave us the questions, and we'll try to answer a few of those each week on these outro episodes. So, All right. First up, we got J.R. Posey on here. He's saying... Uh, opinions or tactics on hunting ridge tops? What you got, Jacob? So, in my opinion on ridge tops, and this is something that definitely Shane Parker can talk a lot about at a very high level, is with ridge tops. Of course, like any any train feature, they're not all created equal. Um, with a ridge top, I think one of the most important factors, especially depending on the time you're hunting it, is where you're almost hunting like a, what's called a ridge top hub where if you looked at like a spoke on a wagon wheel where you have like the center of the wagon wheel and you have all the all the runners going out think of a ridge like that where 
maybe you're not necessarily hunting like an overly long ridge, but you're hunting a ridge system where you can kind of get to that high spot where there's a bunch of other secondary points dropping off in different directions. Those are typically really good spots. You're typically going to find some kind of community or primary scrape in those areas. Um, and also just different overall buck movement up to those spots. Um, and that's a spot like Shane Parker, who's been on the podcast quite a bit. He's going to be on the podcast here coming up very soon. We're actually be hunting with him in Georgia. Um, that's something that he's had a lot of success with. Uh, he actually was showing me a spot that we're probably going to hunt a little bit this year uh, where he's hunted in the past in some public, where he's killed multiple really, really, really good deer, one that was in the 170s on a ridge top hub like that where it's a high spot on a ridge system you have some small look secondary points but also and one thing that he talks about is finding these micro drainages that are coming up to that hub so sometimes you can find it you can see them on, on onyx uh pretty well especially on the topo map layer but you'll see like these slight it's almost like a ripple in the topo lines and that, that little ripple that again doesn't look like much that's a little micro drainage that's kind of running uh, vertically up and down that ridge system. And a lot of times those bucks would like to use those to kind of go up and down elevation. So uh, I know, you know, he's had a lot of success kind of hunting those specific ridge tops. But what about you? Yeah, I, I would kind of second that. You know, outside of hunting your your typical saddles and stuff that are up high on the ridges, the ridge top hub thing is something that I'm wanting to learn more about. And it's something that we'll, we'll talk about with Shane here on an episode pretty soon. But it's uh, it's a really, really interesting subject to me because in the same way that you know, a thermal hub can connect multiple ridges down low. A ridge top hub, or whatever we're going to end up calling that, does the same thing but up high. And basically, uh, you know, if you have little secondary ridges shooting off in a bunch of directions and they all come to one point, that's something worth checking out. Um, and, you know, I, maybe we'll do a video on that, like our Patreon or something. Uh, also, I think we actually do have a video on that on our Patreon. Uh, I think I might have done one of those little hab or, uh, mapping tutorial things on Patreon that covers this. Yeah. Also, another thing about like hunting ridge tops, you know, ridge ridges can be so different. You know, you could have like some real tight spine ridges, which you know may only be thirty, twenty to thirty yards wide at the very top, and they're real steep. You know, you could have one that's a little bit more like a plateau where it's a big, flat, wide ridge top and kind of drops down fairly steep. You could have a little bit more of a rolling hilltop. Typically, a lot of the guests that we have on the podcast that have success hunting ridges and hunting tops of ridges don't necessarily sit right in the middle of that ridge, like right in the slap middle of it, but they'll get to one edge or the other. They'll get to that, that one, you know, slight drop or the other slight drop where they can kind of shoot down the hill, down the side of the ridge, but they yeah. also can kind of shoot back up into the middle part of the ridge or up on top. And a lot of times from what a lot of guests and one comes to mind is um, uh, Justin Houston, uh, who's been on the podcast a few times from Alabama. You know, sometimes those bucks will kind of side hill around, especially if they're hitting feed trees or going back to bed or even leaving a bed in the evenings. Uh, and then sometimes they'll kind of pop up on top or come over from the other side of the ridge and kind of feed up on top. So to me, that's a, that's a really good thing, not only for early season, but also can play out during the rut as well, where you kind of get off the side of that ridge. You're just over the edge of it. When you climb up your tree, you can shoot to the top of the ridge. You shoot off down to the bottom of the ridge, whether you're bow hunting or rifle hunting, and you can kind of cover two different sides of that ridge system versus sitting on top, which is fine. But if you're sitting on top, you can only see what's around you versus off the sides of the ridges, which typically you're going to see a lot of that movement just off the edge of that ridge. So, you know, pay yep. attention to that as well if you're scouting. Mm -hmm. It's all about connectivity too for me or or travel direction. So, like if I were going to hunt a ridge top or some feature on a ridge top, I, I would have to look at it and think, where are they coming from? And where are they going to and try to connect that from two different directions, you know, like like the example I think we did last week where in a certain spot they were they were coming up the hill to a certain area 
and then they were also running the side of the hill, and where those two travel paths kind of meet, that's going to be a good spot, obviously, because you've got multi, multi-directional multi travel. So same thing would apply to a ridgetop, like the, and that's why the ridgetop hub thing is good, because you're having deer that are coming from multiple different directions that they could come from, and they all kind of intersect in that one spot. The same way that if you wanted to hunt people, you would go and you would hunt a major highway intersection. You know, that's that's kind of like the same idea. So, And that's another thing, by the way, Josh Driver talked about, was thinking of these ridge systems as, like, little cities. Mm-hmm. You know, like, this ridge system is a city, this is a city, and, you know, the deer travel back and forth between them. And you got to figure out what those travel routes are. Um, so, Also, one other thing while Andrew pulls up the next Q&A to pay attention to is the thermals. Um, if you're hunting ridge systems, and really if you're hunting in general, you really need to pay attention to thermals, but especially on ridge systems. You know, if you're going to run trail cameras in a spot, Based off of whether you're seeing more daylight, you know, morning movement or in the evening movement, you really need to pay attention to the, to the uh, uh, falling or rising thermal. Or, especially in the mornings, pay attention to a delayed rising thermal, especially if you're on a north-facing slope or if you're on a west-facing slope, specifically in the morning. A lot of people think and a lot of people assume, and they've always heard this and I heard this growing up as well with thermals, or I learned this from my uncles, is, you know, thermals are going ri- to rise in the morning and fall in the evening. That's true from a very simple standpoint, but it's not 100% accurate based off in areas with a lot more topography. If you're on a north-facing slope or a west-facing slope on a morning hunt, it's not the second the sun comes up, it's not going to generate the heat and warm the air on those shaded parts of that hillside of that ridge system to in, in order to have a rising thermal. So you will have a falling thermal for a lot longer period of time on those north-facing slopes and the west-facing slopes because it's on the shaded side of that bridge system until that sun gets up high enough in order to warm the air and the ground around you on that side of the ridge in order for it to start rising. So you really need to pay attention to that. I've seen that. You know, the most defined place I've seen of a, a delayed rising thermal was in a very kind of uh, hilly region part of Alabama that we did a scouting video on, uh, where we were on the north face, uh, north side or north face of a ridge system with some big rock bluffs and everything like that. And there was a delayed thermal there, or delayed rising thermal, to almost 11 o'clock in the morning when we got to that spot and we were just scouting it. Um, also, I've seen on the flip side a delayed falling thermal or which well, actually well, delayed falling thermal. If you're face, if you're on that west facing slope on you know an afternoon sit, it's not going to be the second the sun starts setting. You have a falling thermal until you're in the shade. Once you're in the shade, you're going to have that falling thermal. But on the flip side, if you decided to hunt like a east facing slope or even a south facing slope, but specifically an east facing slope in the evenings, the second that and especially if it's really mountainous or, or extremely hilly and a lot of elevation change you're going to have a falling thermal a lot earlier in those areas on the east-facing slopes in the evenings than you would on the west-facing slope. The second that sun goes over the top of that ridge, and it might be 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you could start experiencing a falling thermal once that shade's been cast. And again, this only plays a factor, it majorly plays a factor, if there's very little wind. If it's light and variable wind conditions, thermals are going to play a part. If you got a 10-mile-an-hour wind, it, the thermals are going to be a lot less... Uh, impactful for you, you could say, uh, if, as long as you have high enough wind speed. So just pay attention to that. I experienced that in Arkansas, uh, hunting the mountains of Arkansas. 2.30 in the afternoon, I was on the side of one mountain on east-facing slope, and at 2.30 in the afternoon, it was already a falling thermal. It didn't get dark till almost 6 o'clock, 6, 6.30. Um, so just pay attention to that kind of stuff. Yeah, absolutely. All right, next up, we got Brian Bear, Cajun French, he says. Uh, hey, guys. Long-time listener and Patreon member here. Love how detailed you guys get without all the extra fluff and BS. My question is, 
I'm curious what you guys and other deep south hunters use for mosquito repellent while hunting early season and especially while scouting. I'm in the hardwood bottoms and cypress tupelo swamps of southeast Louisiana where the mosquitoes are horrific. And most times, off with DEET just doesn't cut it. I often clip my thermocell to my pack or waste while scouting, but after a while, I can taste the fumes in my mouth, and I know that crap can't be good for you. I'm hoping other guys have something figured out better than me. Uh, to me, this is the biggest challenge of early season hunting. I can take the heat, but the mosquitoes kill me. So, um, if, if you listened last week, last week's out here, I talked in a very high level about this with mosquitoes because <laughs> I forgot my mosquito repellent when I went in. And I you mean, didn't talk about how to prevent them. You just got well jacked up. So what I did afterwards worked extremely well. So two things. Um, DEET's, DEET can work great. The problem with DEET is if you get DEET on sensitive parts of your skin, you will feel it burning you. Okay? Like if you get it on your face and it gets like on your lip or anything like that, you'll feel it actually burning, especially if it's like a 40% DEET. 40% DEET works pretty well. You use some of the Sawyer's products that they're 40% DEET. Uh, it works really well. But the thing I like more so than DEET, because DEET, some areas DEET seems to work really well, but you have to have a high concentration of it. If you do like 15% DEET, if you're in areas with really heavy mosquitoes uh, or just, you know, a, a high abundance of mosquitoes, especially like where you're talking about in the country, it's probably not going to work very well for you. So you have to have like that 40% range typically is what I've seen success with. Or another product that you can use, and this is something else that Sawyer produces, uh, and you can pick this up from like Walmart. So you can go to Walmart or like a Bass Pro Shop to pick this stuff up. Is their Precaridin spray? Um, their Precaridin spray is a different compound. It's Precaridin, which is uh, I believe it's an enzyme from a plant, kind of like permethrin, but maybe not. Maybe it's just a straight chemical uh, compound. But unlike DEET, everybody smelt DEET, and DEET has a very, very strong, unpleasant odor, and it burns, okay? It burns if it gets on, again, sensitive parts of the skin, like I've already mentioned. Sometimes if people, like, have really sensitive skin, even if it gets on your arm, DEET will kind of go feel like a burning sensation. The Picaridin doesn't have the awful smell. It's almost like a sweeter smell. I almost kind of, like, explain to people, it almost smells like sweet corn, which is kind of weird. It has, like, a sweet smell to it, but it's also safer skin. So you can put it, like, on your face, you can put it on your arms, you can put it you know, really all over you on your clothing as well. And it'll protect you from ticks and mosquitoes. And I've had tremendous success with that. So I've actually used that uh, in areas of like Tennessee, Alabama, like you know, kind of low lying water areas. I mean, mosquitoes are ungodly. If you're down like, you know, that South Delta area of Mississippi or, or uh, Arkansas and also Louisiana and also parts of Florida, South Carolina, every state, um, it, it works extremely well in that case. So I've had a lot of success with it. Again, it doesn't smell terrible, but it works extremely well because I've had I've had issues in the past as well using like thermocells that it's almost like you need two or three of them yes. in order to get like good coverage around you. That's what I was going to say. And they're still like biting you below the thermocell because mm -hmm. all those all those vapors are coming up. And uh, I've actually sat in a spot one time in Tennessee and had one in my lap. And the mosquitoes are like, okay, I'm not going to come up by your face, but I'm going to get you on the shoulders and get you on yeah. the legs and crap. I'm like, well, yeah. this sucks. Yeah, exactly. So I always like to have some kind of actual spray to put on, and I just soak myself in it. All my clothes, which, you know, clothes I always spray down with, with uh, permethrin. I've had okay success with tick or with uh, mosquitoes with permethrin, but the Picaridin spray works a lot better. And, again, you can pick that stuff up from, like, Walmart and everything else. But Yeah, I was going to say the Picaridin for sure. And I've had similar problems with the, with the uh, thermocells, like especially breathing it in. And, you know, after a while, it like really irritates my throat. So I'll sit there and I'll be coughing, you know, and I can't, I like can't help it, you know, yeah. and I'm like trying to like, you know, cover my coughs and everything. So I'm not being loud, but it's just, it's uncomfortable. And, and, you know, you still get to eat up a little bit. So 
and some people have really good success with thermocells. That's great. That's fantastic. But one thing I've noticed, kind of like this guy here is talking about, if you're in an area, again, those like backwater areas where there's a lot of water, there's a ton of mosquitoes, it's almost like the thermocell is, by itself is not enough. Like you yeah. have to have something else. And that's kind of like what we're talking about. Like the keratin works extremely well um, in that kind of application. So, I mean, yeah. you, and you can use it with your thermocell if you wanted to, but typically it's like you spray that on. And also one thing I like about it, at least with the Sawyers, I think there's, some, I think you can get like an aerosol version, but like their version is like a pump version. So it's quiet. And I actually keep it in my bino harness. So I have a chest bino harness. I have my binos there and I'll have the keratin stuck in one of the side pockets. So like, you know, after a few hours of I'm sweating and I feel like it's kind of coming off a little bit, I'll like take it out and respray down in the stand and yeah. you're not making any noise. When you're yeah. I love that. Cause that little bottle is kind of made to carry with you. Like, yeah. I, like I tell people, I'm like, just go to Walmart and buy like five of them and put one in your backpack, one in your turkey vest, one in your truck. <laughs> And just, like, have them everywhere. Now, I'll tell you another thing about this. So, this is another thing about, like, having stuff on you. Because sometimes, you know, you put it on the truck when you walk in, you may sweat some of this stuff off, especially if it's on bare skin. Um, and that's the problem about having, like, an aerosol can of, uh, like, DEET or something, or even prepared in an aerosol spray uh, spray can. It's too loud. Like, you can't put it yeah. on in the woods. Um, also, another thing that, uh, another uh, Picaridin product, and actually, I use this a lot more this year and this summer, is the Picaridin lotion. Oh yeah, uh, yeah, that Sawyer's makes. So you can get like the spray or the lotion. The lotion you can put like you're not gonna put it on your clothes, but you put it on all your exposed skin, and it works amazing. And the cool thing is, I I practice, I test this out in Tennessee when we're sweating death in 115 degree heat index. Is I'll try the spray on like one side and the lotion on the other side. The lotion would stay even with the sweat; it would stay on you a lot longer than the yep. spray would. It seemed. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's something else. And again, you could put that in your in your bino harness or your backpack, and it's super easy to apply like on your face, your neck, you know, your arms, everything else, your hands uh, when you're actually in the field. And again, you don't even have to worry about the little pump spray. Yeah. Um, we're getting enough Q and A's that we're gonna start doing three okay. per episode. This isn't really one, but I have to read it. Uh, this is from Daniel Flippick. He said, I'm sure I'm late to the party, but is Jacob going to let the world know that he also came out with an iTunes number one hit in Richmond, north of Richmond? I'll hang up and listen. <laughs> so a lot of y'all don't know my stage name is uh, Oliver Anthony. So, uh, yeah. No. Look, when it when it, that first came out and I first heard it, I was like, dang, that's a good song, man. And I shared it on Facebook. And, uh, and then someone commented, they're like, wow, I didn't know Jacob sang. And I went back and looked. I'm like, dang, that guy does look like Jacob. Holy crap. I got to grow my beard out a little bit more. Dude, I mean, I mean, he looked, especially, like, you used to buzz your hair, like, two years ago. This yeah. is before the video podcast. But when Jacob had a buzz cut, I mean, you look exactly like him. Are you him. telling me all redheads look the same? Yes, pretty <sighs> much. I mean, Lord have mercy. But, dude, I almost, I, I was so close to doing this. When that song, like, really blew up, I almost made a post on the Southern Outdoorsman Facebook page that was like, due to Jacob's uh, newfound <laughs> music success, he'll be taking a step back from the Southern Outdoorsman. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do it. I really wish I had. That would have generated a lot of comments. Uh, All right. This is from Matt Bailey. Last one. Hey, guys. I'm mentoring a new hunter this year who's a friend of mine from church. He's very excited about getting in the woods and hopefully harvesting his first deer. The only thing that may make things a little bit harder is that he is deaf and he cannot hear deer approaching. He spooked a buck last season because he did not know it had walked up behind him. Uh, what would be some advice you'll have for someone who is hearing impaired? He purchased a crossbow last year, but will mostly be bow hunting public land. I, I wish that I had a little bit more context. Like, is he like yeah. literally deaf, or like legally deaf, or is he like hard of hearing? Yeah, or you know, you like where use... he, he needs like a hearing aid or something. Yeah, or is he like literally like the world is completely silent to him? Um, because if if it is, 
Like, I'm not real sure, to be honest. Um, if it is, I, it, bow hunting is going to be extremely hard just because from an aspect, a lot of times, depending on where you're hunting at, you know, if you're in a big river bottom and you can see a couple hundred yards, you can potentially see them coming as long as you get your head on the swivel, but then you got to worry about a whole bunch of movement. Um, and a lot of people don't realize, and, and when I read this question, it made me think, there's so many times you hear the deer before you see the deer. Yes. And it's oh, yes. like such a big aspect of deer hunting is like hearing something and then like, you know, kind of turning around like, oh, man, there's a deer coming. There's a yep. buck coming or yep. whatever. Or hearing mm-hmm. a buck grunt or something like that. So it, it, my opinion would be like he could I, let him bow hunt and, and bow hunt. But like I would seriously focus on gun hunting a lot more if you if, if you can own a firearm. He's old enough to own a you know, rifle or whatever and, and focus on areas where hearing's not as much of an issue as in yeah large clear cuts areas you can see a whole you know really far if you can sit on a big power line any kind of long or like you know if it's a gated road that you can actually hunt behind you know it's a lot of gated roads at least some public land around here you can hunt on those gated roads as if as long as it's not open to mo- uh, motorized traffic or like logging roads and stuff like that and you can sit there like in a chair with yep. a tripod and watch 300 yards down this road bed you know going through like a little low spot and you can catch deer coming across that to me, the hearing aspect's not going to be as big of an issue because it's much more mm-hmm. visual in those situations. Yeah. And I feel like that's how he can capitalize becoming much more of a, a focused deer hunter is focus on his strengths, which would be his vision. Yeah, that's what I was going to say is focus on the vision. Uh, some other stuff, like if you're, if you're kind of limited to bow hunting, some other situations that might work would be food plots. Like, honestly, food plots on public land are a lot better um, than people give them credit for. Uh, especially, you know, smaller, more out-of-the-way ones. You can have really good hunts on those. So I wouldn't overlook that if you're just trying to get him a deer. If you're uh, – some some other things would be the feed tree thing can definitely work for him, especially if you're in a more open wood setting. You know, like, you know, you're not going to be, like, punching into the thicket, you know, hunting that little hole in the briars, you know, where that buck is. That's going to be extremely hard if you can't hear. But if you're in more of an open wood setting – where again you're using more of a visual advantage, that's where that's where it's gonna come in handy. I'll tell you something you didn't think about with that. What? Is his noise aspect walking in, he can't hear himself stepping on limbs and making all this extra racket, which then could set deer off again. Yeah. So I think that has to take into consideration as well of like, you know, if he's gonna walk into a spot, you know, there there needs to be some effort put in about like trying to like get into areas as quietly as possible. And again, that's, that's another thing that, again, you don't, you don't really think about until you have a question like this, that, you know, so many times you're so tuned in walking in, like trying to be quiet, trying not to brush up against, you know, branches, making a lot of racket, stepping on twigs, stepping on sticks, rolling rocks, all that kind of stuff. Which if he's truly like, actually like a hundred percent death, he won't be able to hear any of that kind of stuff. So he might put in all that effort and then make so much noise going in, especially like on a calm afternoon, that potentially he's blowing the area out where deer's not going to come. Yeah, but on a feed tree, I feel like that's less of a factor because I feel like you can be, if you're hunting, you know, some uh, more, let's say you're hunting more open hardwoods with Mm -hmm. thick cover adjacent, I feel like noise is significantly less of a factor in something like that, especially if you're getting in three or four hours before the deer are probably going to come in. Uh, because they just they're just hearing something out in the hardwoods, you know. As long as he's not like cracking giant limbs and banging metal together and whatnot, I think he ought to be fine, you know. Even if he's kind of loud walking through, you know, the leaf duff and everything, I don't think that'd be a giant issue. Um, now, if he does have some hearing, like there are, but but he's just like has I don't know what the term would be, like 
hard of hearing, I guess, where where he's like he has a, a hearing impairment, but he's not completely deaf. I mean, there are things like obviously like hearing aids or whatever, but like game ears or whatever, something like that might help. Um, but yeah, I don't know. That I've, that's a very unique question, man. I, I wish you luck. That's awesome that you're getting him out there and and taking him hunting. Um, that's probably that's probably really awesome for him. So good on you for doing that. And I hope you I hope you guys get one this year. Mm-hmm. So I, I'd be very curious to to have you write back in and uh, and kind of maybe give us a little more context and let us know how your season goes because I I would love to know if y'all end up getting on some deer. Yep. Now we got some new reviews we got to read. Yes, sir. We got some new reviews. So, uh, Jacob, you want to give them the spiel on all? Yeah. So, uh, of course, appreciate everybody that's been leaving us reviews. So, on iTunes and on Spotify, Spotify, you can leave us as a five-star review. They don't allow written reviews. But if you listen on an Apple product, iPhone, iPad, something like that, um, if you could take two seconds out of this podcast and go leave us a five-star written review, specifically a written review. I mean, if you just leave us a five-star review, I'll be super happy. But if you can leave us a written review, that's really awesome because we love not only reading it, but it also helps us out a little bit on the show. Uh, we're about to hit, I think we're one away currently, at least as we're recording this, from 1,050 reviews. Yep, that's right. Um, but it's awesome getting some of the feedback from you guys, and that's another huge thing you do. Of course, you know, always to share the show. That's the biggest thing you can do to help the podcast. Share the show friends, buddies, the family, the whole nine yards. But also, if you leave us a, uh, a, a written review, it's also a huge deal. So we try to read off some of the new reviews. It's been a few weeks since we've read some, but we've had quite a few come in recently, so we'll kind of knock some of those out. So, hooked up. Um, uh, this is from Justin, Deep South Bama. Hooked on phonics for deer hunting. That's a Michael Pike reference for uh, for all the listeners out there. Um, absolutely love this podcast. I've listened to all or almost all of the 500 plus episodes with these guys. I feel like I've learned so much about hunting alongside these guys. The questions they ask um, are the, these extremely successful hunters down here in the South leaves me with barely any questions at all. If you still have questions about something, simply reach out to them and they are great down to earth guys that will help in any way from hunting terrain features, scent control, hunting thermals slash wind, bedding, feed trees, and so much more. This podcast will make you more educated in the woods if you have just a little bit of luck, which I don't have, you will definitely be more successful. Uh, thank you guys for all you do for us Southerners and even making a career change to help educate us Southern hunters or our, us Southerners to learn how to chase that whitetail. Happy hunting and roll tide. Maybe I need hooked on phonics. I kind of struggled with that one. <laughs> but uh, Justin, like, appreciate that, man. That was a fantastic review. Roll tide. War Eagle, baby. <laughs> There's a freeze warning down in the plains this year. So, all right. Next up. All right. Oh, this is, yeah, this is a this is a great one. Um, so this title this is five star review. Uh, Dusty off my dad's teachings from your podcast. This is from T Cook nine eleven. At the fourteen thirty six mark, you guys have no idea how refreshing it is to hear all the con- all the conversations you have between you guys and your guests. I have a lot of catching up in listening to the podcast. In I have a lot. I can't talk. Hooked, Hooked on, on phonics, phonics worked for me. Yeah. We, <laughs> hey, we need to save that. We need to save that as a button on here oh. and just and just start. Hitting, oh hitting. my gosh, that would be uh, so good. <laughs> so I have a lot of catching up and episodes to listen to. I'm 49 years old and grew up hunting everything with my dad at everything with my dad at a camp he started in the 70s. After he passed, hunting that area hasn't been the same. I am three years into my own 180-acre lease with potentially purchase, with potential to purchase. I'm going back to my hunting roots and tactics, which line up with many topic with many topics you discuss. 
which is helping me tremendously by sparking memories and tactics I have forgotten over the years. I am more excited now than I ever... I, God, I can't talk. Man! I can't read. I am more excited now than I have in many years. My 18-year-old daughter is even seeing my excitement. She has hunted with me her entire life, and she has been hooked since harvesting her first deer at seven years old. Please keep what you're doing and never change. If you ever want to come to South Mississippi, and kind of names off some places, give me a call anytime. Hopefully I'll be able to share a listener success story harvest from my daughter this coming year using information I gained in the short time of what is that? Listen, <laughs> he meant to say listening. Okay, that's okay. it doesn't help guys. I can't read it. Jacob also, can't read. And also when y'all misspell stuff tremendously bad. But anyways, uh it's just a typo. But yeah, uh, in the short time of listening and following you, your various channel formats. <laughs> <laughs> man, you a struggle. Struggle with that. That's an awesome review. I'm, I'm, I really hope that you get a deer with your daughter, man. That's awesome. Yeah. And I, I appreciate you writing that in and keep us posted on how you do. Uh, definitely reach out if, if you have some success this year. Yep. I, I agree with this one. So, a long t- so if you're a long time listener, guys, we've had some like historical uh, reviewers. Okay. It's always been the reviews, always leave us new reviews. And this is one of our favorites by far. This is from Thicket Cricket, who's a long time yeah. reviewer, a long time listener of the podcast. Five stars. 601 time to get in <laughs> 601 time to get thick in the thicket. Won't be long now. Nice crisp cool mornings. Leaves fallen. Oh, leaves, leaves falling. falling. Golly. I, I'm dragging your target buck across your back 40 fence. Hashtag #fear the chirp. Man. I'm so, not going to let you read any more of these. That's hilarious. Golly. All right. Uh you know, I want to get uh I want to get like chat gpt or whatever you know how it can like or is it is that the one that can like draw you pictures or is it the adobe one it's the i'm gonna i'm gonna get the ai thing to draw a picture of like a like a bow hunting cricket and see whatever scary picture it comes up with i'm sure it'd be horrifying we tried to get a we tried to get uh one of those ai things to draw a picture of jacob and the oh ginger my, bow hunter i was like i was like draw a picture of the ginger bow hunter and what it spit out was horrifying had, had three eyes the, the bow was <laughs> it spit like out a monster yeah the bow that looked like something from a horror film that doesn't even make sense <laughs> it's so scary all right southern fusion hunting this is from deep step 11 uh five stars the most relatable hunting information out there for the true southern outdoorsman a great mix of guests from across the country. These guys pull every tactic and attempt to apply it to the land of the pine thicket. Fantastic work, boys. Appreciate it. Awesome. Appreciate all the reviews, everybody. Uh, we'll get back to reading those every week, especially now that we're rolling into deer season. And, uh, hey, uh, by the time this drops, deer season's underway, and I know Georgia. So uh, y'all definitely be writing in with your listener success stories. We're going to be looking out for them. So excited to see the brand new listener success stories rolling in from this year. Which you can fill that out in a lot of these uh, episodes in the show description. It will have a link on there to fill out a listener success form from our website. Or you can just go to the southernoutdoorsmen.com and there's a tab on the website talking about listener success stories. Then you can fill it out, send a photo in, a story. And we're actually going to be doing monthly drawings with a couple different companies to give away some free gear um, from new listener success stories that come in each month. So we're going to start, even if you killed here in September, you can submit it. It'll go into the October drawing. We'll do one for October, November, December, and probably in January as well. Yep. So super excited about that. Love seeing the new stories. Uh, we've been posting 
at least two to three listener success stories on Facebook and Instagram every week now yep. for the whole summer. It's been awesome kind of posting some, some of those from last year. We look forward to doing the same thing this year. So hopefully this episode, again, the Josh Drivers episode, has been extremely impactful for you. If it has, again, share the show, guys. Share the episode. Share the show. Friends and family, the whole nine yards. We want to hear about We want to see it. We want to get other people that haven't heard the show uh, tune into the show and see if it impacts them as much as it's impacting you for this season. So appreciate y'all listening. Appreciate y'all watching on YouTube. And we'll catch you back here for the next episode of the Southern Outdoors Podcast. All right, guys, we're starting to get kind of close to summer here. And you know what my favorite part about summer is? The Mobile Hunters Expo. Y'all heard us talk about it a lot last year, and we actually got to meet a lot of you guys at that expo. Well, we're excited to announce we're going to be there again. This time it's going to be in Dalton, Georgia, June 28th through June 30th. We are going to be there all three days. We're going to have a bunch of past podcast guests there. We're going to have a booth where you can come by and grab some merchandise. And I'm sure we're going to be recording all kinds of podcasts there. If you're unfamiliar, the Mobile Hunters Expo is the place you need to be if you are the kind of hunter that listens to this podcast this show was literally made for you it is an excellent group of people that are going to be there a lot of whitetail killers from around the southeast are going to be there you're going to get to talk to them shake their hand learn from them in person make some connections and guys we get a lot of questions about hey, which saddle should i get which tree stand should i get what about this piece of gear what about that piece of gear how do I meet other hunters who want to hunt the same way that I do? You know, finding a good hunting buddy. The Mobile Hunters Expo is a place for all of that. So you guys don't miss it. June 28th through the 30th, Dalton, Georgia. We'll see you there.